George Bush uh, was often mocked and derided throughout the present his presidency of the United States. Um, I guess compared to Donald Trump, he seems quite <laughs> harmless and, and cuddly, doesn't he? But uh, in his day, he was he was much mocked, wasn't he? And uh, one such cause of of derision uh, was his infamous so-called mission accomplished speech uh, back in 2003 um, in reality I believe he didn't actually utter those those words uh, but nonetheless when he was giving the speech he was standing in front of a, a massive banner that proclaimed mission accomplished and that was the the, the gist of, of his address and, and the reason for the derision that, uh, that, that, that followed on from that was that despite the, the, the fine-sounding words, uh, the Iraq war was far from over. Um, guerrilla warfare continued, and there were far more casualties, both, both uh, civilian and, and military, after the speech than there had been before the speech. So mission accomplished, fine-sounding though it was, was a very hollow slogan, wasn't it? Well, Jesus came on a mission, and he truly can proclaim mission accomplished. <coughs> and uh, as we're going to see tonight um, in verse 18 of, uh, of, Peter, uh, of 1 Peter 3, Jesus accomplished the mission that he came on. Now, on the last two occasions, we've been looking at uh, verses 13 to 17 in chapter 3. And one of the themes that was very prominent in those verses was that, that Peter was thinking about believers suffering for Christ's sake. So in verse 14 he said, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. He's saying, believers in Christ, you can expect to suffer. Suffer for, for being righteous. Uh, it's pointing out that we might well suffer. Suffer for actually being good. Um, you might be subject to undeserved suffering. And then in verse 17, he went on to say, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So that's uh, the context behind what Peter goes on to say in the coming verses. Now, from, from here, from verse 18, through to the end of the chapter, it has to be said that this is, the most difficult passage to understand, uh, certainly in, in the whole of, of this letter, and it is up there with the most difficult passages in the whole of Scripture. So um, it, it's very, very difficult. Um, but it does begin with the wonderful words, the glorious words that we have here in verse 18, where, where Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So today we're just going to look at that verse and we'll tackle the difficult bits next time. Um, this is the last in, in this series, so there's, there's quite a while now until you're going to have to face them. Um, but I'm not doing this because I'm chickening out of them. Um, we, we will tackle those difficult bits. But verse 18 is so wonderful. Um, we, we don't want to 
detract from from the wonder of those words by getting bogged down in a lot of really difficult stuff. So, you know, don't want to put you off for the future, but we do have tough times ahead in in 1 Peter. So be warned. But uh, verse 18 begins by saying, For Christ also suffered. So the word for indicates that Peter's going on to give a reason for what he'd just been saying about about us suffering, about, about it being better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will. So what he's going on to say relates to that. And then notice that he said Christ also suffered. So the word also suggests that there's some sort of of similarity between believers in Christ and Christ himself. So what does Peter go on to say about Christ? Well, he says Christ also suffered. Um, Some versions have died um, because this is one of those very rare instances in which a, a change has crept in during the copying of the manuscripts. And it's, it's, it's impossible to know for, for sure which was the original. Um, given the context and the flow of the passage, it seems to me most likely that Peter did originally write suffered rather than, rather than died. You know, the overall flow is that is, you know, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered. That, that seems a, a, a natural progression, doesn't it? Um, if it said, for Christ also died, it would be difficult to relate that back to our suffering. Um, we, we, we don't die in the way that, that Christ died. So I, I think suffered is, is, is the best uh, way, is, is the most likely uh, wording there. Back in uh, chapter 2, verse 21, Peter had said, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. You know, there he was saying that Christ's suffering was an example uh, that we've been called to follow. And now in, in verse uh, 17, he's saying we're to follow that example even if we're suffering unjustly. And then in verse 18, he goes on to say that Jesus suffered even though he was righteous. So he also suffered unjustly. You know, we, we can face unjust suffering in the knowledge that our Saviour faced unjust suffering. Uh, Nonetheless, uh, Jesus went on to triumph, didn't he? Through his unjust suffering, he he triumphed. And Peter's using the fact that Jesus suffered unjustly, but went on to triumph as an encouragement to believers to note his example and to follow in his steps, even if it means suffering unjustly, because following him leads to sharing in the victory that he has won. So, so Peter's drawn our attention to a, that similarity between believers in Christ and Christ himself in terms of facing unjust suffering. Now, of course, Jesus suffered in many ways. Throughout his earthly life, it was characterised by all sorts of suffering, wasn't it? All of it was undeserved. But the next thing we need to notice is that although there's a similarity between us and Jesus, there's also a very huge difference, isn't there? Um, Peter goes on to say that Christ suffered once 
for sins. You see, Jesus suffered during his earthly life, but his suffering culminated in that he suffered once for sins. Now, saying that he suffered for sins really means that he suffered because of sin or on behalf of sin. Uh, Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians 15.3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Peter had already expressed a similar idea back in chapter 2 verse 24 when he said, uh, speaking of Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So it's very clear, isn't it, that Jesus suffered for sin. He died for our sin. He, he bore our sin. Now the phrase for sin um, is repeatedly found in the Old Testament. If you look at the Pentateuch, um, time and time again you'll, you'll find that, that sacrifices are being made for sin. But we get that expression uh, over and over again. Uh, in Hebrews 13, verse 11 to 12, we read, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So it's very clear, isn't it, that Jesus suffered for sin. He died for sin in our place. And the, the writer to the Hebrews is pointing back to, to, to that and it shows that the suffering of Jesus is to be considered in, in the same, same way. Just as animals were offered as a sacrifice for sin, so Jesus suffered as a sacrifice for sin. Now the idea behind those, those sacrifices was that God's just anger against people's sin was being satisfied so that they could be restored into a, a right relationship with him. The, the, the big words for those ideas are propitiation uh, and atonement. Propitiation is uh, satisfying God's anger, satisfying God's wrath. And uh, atonement it is putting things right. It's, it's making the relationship right again. So you've got propitiation and atonement. That's exactly what we need as, as sinful human beings. You know, because we're sinful, God is justly angry with us. And, and we need that anger to be taken away. And, and again, because of that sin, we're not right with God. We're, we're estranged from God. And we need to be brought back. And so we need propitiation and atonement. Now, of course, the offering of, of animals didn't actually accomplish that. If we turn to Hebrews again, uh, reading chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, indeed of the true form of these realities, 
it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would, they would have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consci- consciousness of sin. But in, in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Couldn't put it any more bluntly than that, really, could you? The, the, the writer's very explicit in stating that animal sacrifices don't work. That they, they don't do the trick. That they can't take away sins. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Well, that being the case, you might then wonder, what, what was the point of them? Why did God want these sacrifices to, to be made if they weren't actually going to make any difference? Well, the, the writer's just said, but in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. And then you think about it and you think, well, okay, but even so, what's the point in being reminded of sin if the prescribed sacrifices don't work? And it's because they pointed to a sacrifice that would work. The writer introduced this section of Hebrews by saying, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, the sacrifices prescribed under the law, they weren't the real deal, but they foreshadowed the coming reality. They weren't the real deal, but the real deal was to come. And they they pointed to it, that they pictured the sacrifice that would do the trick. Uh, The writer of Hebrews then goes on in, in the chapter to speak of Christ coming into the world to both offer that sacrifice and to be that atoning sacrifice. So from verse 18 here, I want us to note four points about the atonement that Jesus made. Uh, We see its nature, its means, its purpose and its outcome. So the nature of this atonement, what we see here of the nature of the atonement is that it's ultimate. In speaking of Jesus suffering for our sins, Peter says he did so once. The text says, for Christ also suffered once for sins. So that indicates a, a distinct and definite event that's taken place. It's not referring to, to the general suffering that Jesus had to endure throughout his life. No, it's, it's speaking of specific suffering for sin. And of course, that's his death. That was what he was doing on the cross. Uh, Peter goes on later in the verse to, to refer to his being put to death in the flesh. So that's quite clear, isn't it? Jesus in a body, as God become man, <coughs> being put to death, dying on the cross. So once points back to his death being a definite historic event that took place. But the, the Greek word here that's been translated as, as once... It doesn't merely mean once. Uh, It doesn't mean it happened once and it could happen again. It doesn't mean uh, one time out of 
several possible times. Um, that's why, if you look, if you uh, in the NIV, uh, that they've chosen there to say once for all. Now, the words for all aren't in the Greek, but they do help to emphasize the, the, the nature uh, of this Greek word that's been translated as once. I think the NIV has probably been quite helpful in, in, in trying to, to emphasize that, although maybe once for all isn't the best way of doing it, because that could give the impression that it means once and for every person. And that's not the that's not the sense. Uh, it, it would perhaps have been more helpful to say once and for all time, or, or once and forever, indicating the the finality of the atonement that Jesus made. Now, such finality is in very marked contrast, isn't it, with those Old Testament sacrifices? Hebrews seven twenty seven we read, he has no need like those high priests who offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sin and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. You see, in contrast with those daily sacrifices, he offered himself once for all, or or once and forever. In Hebrews 9, we, we were looking at that chapter this morning, and the writer there was saying that Jesus isn't like those earthly priests, uh, because he didn't have to keep on repeating those, those sacrifices. Uh, and he says in verse 16, But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So he appeared once and for all. He completed it. He finished it. It was dealt with. And then in, a, in verse 28 of Hebrews 9, we read, So, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, uh, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So, Christ is going to come again, and when he does that, it won't be to deal with sin. Why? It's already been dealt with. He's done it. He's made the atoning sacrifice. He's already been once to bear the sin of many. So we've got the contrast between the Old Testament sacrifices and the finality of of Christ's sacrifice. Uh, Even more emphatically uh, in Hebrews 10, 10 to 14. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting waiting from that time until his enemies should be made his footstool uh, for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It's really being hammered home, isn't it? It, it's, It's once and for all time. It's a single offering. There's no mistaking the fact that there's this absolute finality about the atonement that Jesus made. So Christ's (coughs) suffering on the cross was ultimate. It was a never-to-be-repeated atoning sacrifice. He offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. Uh, in, In Roman Catholicism, 
the Mass is considered to be a reoffering uh, of Christ's sacrifice. Well, I mean, quite apart from all the uh, the transubstantiation mumbo jumbo that goes along uh, uh, along with the Mass, the idea that Christ's sacrifice is being made again just shows a complete failure to comprehend the the finality, the, the completeness of the offering that Jesus made. You know, in his words from the cross, it is finished, or mission accomplished. <laughs> the next thing to notice is the means of this atonement. And we see here that the means of this atonement is substitution. Having said that Christ also suffered once for sins, Peter went on to explain that he did so as the righteous for the unrighteous. Speaking of Jesus as being righteous, and that immediately tells us that he was without sin, uh, Peter's told us that back in chapter 2, verse 22, when he said, uh, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. More than that, he was positively righteous in God's sight. He was pleasing to God in every way. He wasn't just without sin. His meat and drink was to do the will of the Father. Everything he did was pleasing to God. He, he was utterly righteous in, in, in every respect, in, in, every, uh, in every aspect. But there's even more to it than that. Um, what our versions uh, don't make clear is that Jesus is not just being spoken of here as the righteous. Uh, he's actually being spoken of as the righteous one. The righteous one. And we find that the early church uh, very often referred to him in that way. So, for instance, when, when Peter and John had healed a lame man, uh, and following that, Peter addressed the crowd. Uh, in the course of that address, we read in Acts 3.14 that he said, uh, But you denied the Holy and Righteous One. Who was he talking about? Well, it becomes clear, doesn't it? And asked for a murderer to be granted to you. It's referring to the fact that uh, they, they denied Jesus. He's the Holy and Righteous One. He's referring to Jesus as the righteous one. Uh, during Stephen's speech, before he was uh, stoned to death, we read in Acts 7, verse 62, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Again, very clear, Jesus is being referred to as the righteous one. Paul recounting how his sight was restored to him after that life-changing encounter with, with the risen Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. Um, he quoted the words of Ananias to him in, in Acts 22, 14 to 15. The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one. And to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him uh, to everyone of what you have seen and heard. So when Jesus had that encounter 
with the risen Lord Jesus Christ, he was encountering the righteous one. Jesus is the righteous one. Why did the early church uh, so often refer to Jesus in that way? Uh, no doubt they, they were thinking of Isaiah 53, verses 11 to 12, where we read, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied, and by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressions, yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Referring to Jesus as the righteous one, it's not only to, to say that he was sinless, but it's identifying him as the one who was chosen, the, the one who was appointed by God to be the sin bearer and, and to make atonement. Having spoken of Jesus as the righteous one, uh, Peter then goes on to mention the unrighteous. And whereas the righteous one was most definitely singular, um, the unrighteous, it, it, that's plural. So Peter was actually saying that Jesus suffered as the righteous one for the many unrighteous. That sense of, of the many unrighteous comes out clearly uh, in Isaiah 53, doesn't it, that we just read. You know, Isaiah said that the righteous one would make many to be accounted righteous. You know, the many who, who are unrighteous, he will make righteous. And then that he bore the sin of many. You know, this wasn't just a one-to-one -one correspondence. He didn't, uh, it's not one righteous one in the place of one unrighteous one. No, because he's God, he's sufficient, he's big enough, he's great enough to actually bear the sins of many unrighteous ones. So the means of uh, this atonement is the suffering uh, in the death of the righteous one for the many unrighteous. In what sense was his death for the unrighteous? You don't need to think for very long to realise that that little word for is used in many, many different ways. I, I looked it up in a dictionary. It sounds a bit silly, doesn't it, looking up in a dictionary, a word like for. Uh, but I found 25 usages listed there. 25 ways in which the word for is used. And going through that list, it was immediately apparent that the vast majority would make absolutely no sense in this context. Um, some came pretty close. Um, one, one was listed as in exchange for, and that's, that's pretty close. Another one was in recompense for. But I think the only one that, that made good sense was in the place of. In the place of. That's the means of this atonement. It was Jesus the righteous one dying in the place of many unrighteous people. He was righteous, so he certainly didn't deserve to die. But he was also 
the righteous one. And that was what he was appointed to. That was what, that's what he was intended to do. It was God's intention that he should take the place of the unrighteous. So the means of this atonement was substitution. Jesus took the place of his people and paid the price of their sins. Uh, you, you might sometimes hear that expression, vica- vicarious and substitutionary atonement. I'm sorry, I'm, that, that's, that's the second time tonight I've thrown out big words, but uh, sometimes it's, it's good to be clear about what these things mean, isn't it? So, as as um, yeah, so vicarious simply means on behalf of, and substitution means in the place of. So as our substitute, he took our place, and then in our place, he took our sin upon himself, and then he acted vicariously on our behalf by, by taking the punishment that that sin deserved. He could only do that because he had no sin of his own. His perfect righteousness made him fit to make that atonement for us. Paul sums it up, I think, beautifully in in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he, that's God, made him, that's Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Wonderful verse, thrilling verse. So that, that sums up the fact that this atonement was by substitution. But next let's move on to the purpose of the, of the atonement. Uh, quite often you hear people say that atonement can be expressed as at one month. And that's quite a useful way uh, of looking at the word. It, it speaks of the fact that the purpose is, is relational. It, it, it brings about a, a restoration of a relationship. And we see that here, that the, the, the purpose is, is that restoration, because having said, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, Peter then said, that he might bring us to God. That he might bring us to God. So those words, that he might, well, that speaks to the purpose. That, that speaks of the intention. That speaks of what it's all in aid of, the aim. And what is that purpose? It's to bring us to God. Uh, and the fact that we need to be brought to God, well, that immediately reminds us of, of, of what we're like by nature, doesn't it? We're, we're, we're away from God. We're, we're apart from God. We're separated, we're estranged from God. Uh, Peter's description, uh, uh, Peter's described that state in various ways already in the letter. Uh, He's previously described it as being in darkness. Not not in God's light, but in darkness. Uh, In in chapter 2 verse 9, speaking of believers, he said that God has called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. By nature, we're in darkness, but he's called us out of that darkness into his light. In verse 25 of the same chapter, again speaking of believers, he said, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You see, by nature, 
we were astray. We were lost. We were away from God. Just as a, a stray sheep is away from it, the, the, away from the shepherd that it, it, it depends upon. But why are people in that state? Well, it's because of, of Adam's rebellion against God. In response to that rebellion, we were told that God banished fallen mankind from his presence. And we read in Genesis three, twenty-three to 24, Therefore the Lord God sent him, that's Adam, from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Adam's sin resulted in him being banished from, from the presence <coughs> of God. And you might say, well, that sounds a very harsh punishment. But it's actually a, a gracious act by God. You know, what Adam did deserved destruction. It deserved death. But God graciously chose not to destroy Adam as he deserved. Why? Because he had a plan. A plan for restoration by, by means of the atonement that was going to be made through the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Paul often uh, talks in terms of having uh, of the atonement having brought about access to God you know, that, that flaming sword that barred the way uh, that, that, that was keeping Adam out, keeping Adam away, but the atonement was God's means of opening the way of access back to himself so in Romans 5 1-2 we read therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. In Ephesians 2.18 we read, For through him, that that's Jesus who suffered that atoning death, we both, that that's believing Jews and believing Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. And then Ephesians three eleven to twelve we read this was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So we see repeatedly that Paul speaks of this idea of of access. That the idea of access is uh, Described in slightly different terms in Hebrews. Hebrews 10, 19-22 Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the, the holy place by the blood, of the, Lord, the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a, a, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a, a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now that's an allusion to the, the symbolism of the temple, isn't it? 
that the holy place represented God's presence uh, in, in all of his glory and the way into his presence was blocked by the curtain. It's the same as that flaming sword. It's blocking the way. It's keeping us out. Uh, we were thinking last week, last Sunday morning in, in Hebrews, weren't we? About the fact that everything about the temple cried out, no entrance. It, it said, danger, keep out. Everything about it was screaming out, keep away. But what happened to that curtain when Jesus died on the cross? Well, it was torn from, from top to bottom. His blood opened a new and living way uh, to come into God's presence. Now, it's wonderful that, that in and through Christ we have access to God. You know, it's wonderful that he's opened up that new and living way. I'm sure that we will find it thrilling to think, to, to think about that. But, you know, it seems to me that Peter is actually saying something even more than that uh, in, in these, these words here. Because you notice that he said, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He's not just opened up the way and then left us to it. No, he's opened up the way so that he can actively bring us to God. We see uh, in all of this that our salvation it is entirely his work. It's all his doing. Yeah. He died once. He died in our place. Why? Well, was it to give us a, an opportunity to return to God? Was it to give us a, a chance to be reconciled to God? No, we see that it was in order that he might bring us to God. In, in what sense does he bring us to God? Well, he, he brings us to know, to know God. Uh, more than that, he brings us into a right relationship with God. He brings us into fellowship with God. Ultimately, he'll bring us into the very presence of God. Hebrews 2 verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. You see, Jesus is bringing many sons to glory. And in this context, glory means where God is present. In the fullest and most wonderful sense, um, Jesus encouraged his disciples by, by speaking to them in terms of, of taking them to his father's house. In John 14, to 3 he said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told, told you. I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. You see, Jesus said that he would come again and take us to be with himself in the Father's house. His purpose was to bring us, uh, bring us to glory. So the purpose uh, that the atonement, uh, the purpose of the atonement that Jesus made as he suffered once for sins, 
uh, the righteous for the unrighteous was in order that he might bring us to glory. He brings us. He, he, he does the work. It's perhaps put quite poetically in, um, in a verse from the King of Love My Shepherd Is. You know, perverse, I'm trying to remember the words now, perverse and foolish, oft I strayed, but yet in love he brought me. Love him, he sought me. Um, gently laid and home rejoicing brought me. He, he brings us. He, he does the carrying. He does the bringing. So, did he succeed? Can he bring us to God? The last thing to notice here very briefly it is the outcome of this atonement. Right at the end of verse 18, that's really, this is really where it gets difficult. So I'm just going to make one very simple point before, before we get into it next time. But Peter says of Christ being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, that's quite difficult. You might not realise it, but it is difficult. Uh, I'm not going to consider the difficulties now. I just want to close by seeing that however you understand that, the outcome of his atoning death is success. He was put to death in the flesh. And that speaks of an actual bodily death. And it sounds like failure, doesn't it? It sounds like the end. You ask most people what they think of death and they think, well, it's curtains. It's the end. There's nothing nothing further. That That's it. Absolute failure. It's all ended in defeat. But you see, it's not. Because Peter goes on to say, <coughs> but made alive in the spirit. So yes, Jesus died. He, he had to if he was to make that atonement for our sins. He died, but he's alive. He rose from the dead. What looked like failure was success. The apparent defeat became a victory. The, the seeming disaster became a triumph. Jesus died once, and that's enough. He really took away the sins of his people so that he can realise that purpose to bring us to God. So, it's mission accomplished. Amen.